Hi there, wonderful people, and welcome to the Finnovator Podcast. My name is Stuart Bell. I'm a business coach. Uh, I am the founder of Adari Coaching Consulting. I am the creator of the Leverage Advice Firm program and author of Finnovation. And for the last decade, uh, it's been my pleasure to work with uh, financial experts, advisors, brokers, accountants, and other people whose knowledge, when applied to other people's situations, generates a really great financial result to help them improve the business side of what they do. And uh, what I'd like to share as part of this podcast series are some of the interviews, some of the one-on-one discussions I've had with clients, uh, with subject matter experts, or just people who had fantastic success in their business and really unpack the nuts and bolts, how they did it, the mistakes they made, the timeframes, the tools they used. In other words, getting really practical. And I'm hoping, like many a business I've worked through, you can take some of this insight combined with uh, you know, some of the tools and some of the suggestions and apply it to your own business uh, to generate great results. And specifically, to help you, you know, have more impact on the clients you work with uh, to free yourself up uh, so you can do more of the high value work and less of the low value work. And equally importantly, to create profitable, enduring businesses on an ongoing basis. Uh, this is the first in a series. Uh, and first cab off the rank, I want to share with you probably one of my favorites. Uh, Master of Reviews with James Williamson of Millhaven Financial. Uh, James was actually one of the very first consulting clients I ever worked with. Uh, we worked together for over eight years. And as well as that, he's also one of my favorite people in the industry, a fantastic advisor and just an all-around uh, great practitioner. Uh, specifically in this podcast or this discussion, we're going to go deep on an area that I think is really, really, really relevant right now on a number of different levels, and that is uh, ongoing service propositions and specifically how to make a review, your review meeting, your progress check, your strategy refresh, whatever you want to call it, make it something that is really valuable uh, and do it in an efficient way. As you'd expect, diving into reviews, we talked about everything from technology, what to use and what not to use. We talked about the ongoing service propositions itself. We talked about segmentation. We talked about how to say yes, how to transition, how to say no to certain clients. And as you'd expect, we talked a lot about pricing and some of the outcomes that James achieved as a result of really facing this one head on, uh, I think are worth sort of hearing, both from a perspective of how he did it, but also to give you confidence that moving your business across from an older model to a new model is not the, the barrier that it potentially seems to be. Although I'm sure many of you already realize that. But anyway, uh, as part of this, this is just one example of one thing I want to share. I'm also going to be sharing in other podcasts kind of the little tactics, the things that are easy to implement in your business uh, from the program as we do them week by week uh, that you can take and implement, not projects, not things that take months, but rather things that you can get up and running in a week. But this is the first of our one-to-one masterclass session. So I hope you enjoy it. My suggestion is, you know, if you can just take one thing from this, uh, whether you're listening in the car or you're listening on the road or in the office, if you can just find one thing to implement in your business in the next week, month, uh, then that will be, uh, I guess, a return on your listening uh, time, which I think is the best thing for me. Of course, if you really like this, I'd love for you to subscribe and uh, see what else is coming down the pike because we've got uh, some of the best one-to-one discussions over the past two years coming up fast. But without a shadow of a doubt, let's hand it over to me and James to talk about how to nail your review in Master of Reviews. The background to this is I've known James a very long time. Um, 
James is actually uh, one of the first clients I, I started working with uh, when I when I became an independent business coach, so to speak. And uh, it's just been one of those sort of relationships where you start off working together and then you become friends. And I've, I've got so much respect for James and what he does, so much so that, you know, when, when family members uh, ask me which planner would I recommend in the area, James is the one I send them to. But um, we've done a lot of projects down the years, but this is the one uh, of the story I, I really want to share with you because... Uh, James is, uh, does a few things really, really well. Uh, he is really good at uh, managing client relationships, like outstanding. Uh, and you know, not that long ago, he made a decision uh, that he wanted to take his business in a certain direction, which wouldn't involve sort of being junior planners. And to do that, he had to get very, very good at delivering his reviews uh, at a certain volume. Uh, and to do that, he had to create a system or master a system which enabled him to really be the one sort of showing up and have the team do the setup and the pack up the other side. Uh, on top of that, he, he's really, really good at delivering experience and he's very structured in the way that he's done it. And we're going to talk uh, through a bit of this today. But I guess one of the, uh, one of the key stories behind this is this wasn't just delivering a review or developing it with, um, you know, for the sake of doing it, uh, although that was a big part of it. It was also to, to move his business from a place that uh, there was a, some, some risks, some legislative risk in, in his business model to a place where he didn't have to worry about that. And uh, that's the pricing story I'm, I'm keen to explore today. Uh, there's a third part I want to talk about, uh, and it's about uh, really managing time. James is such a, a good manager of his time, and he's done it through learning some systems and some ways of doing it. And I guess there's, a, there's another part to this, which I wanted to sort of kick off with, because um, right here and now, there's so much going on in the industry. Uh, everybody's busy. Everybody's uh, got stuff on. And uh, I've had conversations with people recently indicating that they just felt there was too much to do. And I think most of us will have been in that situation where, you know, you feel like there's too much to do. But the, the challenge for me, and particularly when I'm having a conversation with somebody and they say, whether you're on the program or not on the program, and they say, I don't have time to do X, Y, and Z, or, or, or I, I don't have time to do this, is, you know, sometimes we look at certain aspects of practice management or certain aspects of what I do. And you see, I have to do a project here. I have to do a project there. But right here and now with what's going on, with everybody overwhelmed, I think finding time to get stuff done, it, this is the project. Uh, and we're gonna talk through a number of uh, sort of things we work together and James has done on his own in order to fit that time uh, around how to, how to reduce the number of options available to you, how to sort of get this habit of accepting tasks you know, with the greatest intention but not completing. Distraction we're gonna talk about is a big one, uh, being disorganized and not planning ahead well enough and, and ultimately not doing what you wanna do because um, I guess over these next six months in particular, uh, I think if, if you're finding yourself overwhelmed now and not having time to do some of these things, like get on the front foot with client engagement and, and the pricing transitions and all these sort of things that are kind of a, a must do in order to, to make it through this next period, then you might want to consider that the project you need to be working on is to find the time in your diary and find the, and, and remove yourself from the overwhelm. And as James will share a story um, that we were talking about just before we came on, you know what, if some of the world's most successful people can find the time to do it, then I'm pretty much sure everybody in this room can do the same. So... With that in mind, we're going to dive in. We're going to talk about reviews. We're going to talk about pricing transitions, and we're going to talk about how to find the time to get it all done. So it's going to be a, a really good session, and uh, I know you're going to get a lot of value out of it. So, James. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good job. I was just listening to some of those questions. I think I'm going to cancel my appointments for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. It's, this is a new eight-hour eight webinar. We've got, a lot, we've got a lot to get through, haven't we? But are you, are you pretty, I, I, yeah, there are some great questions. I almost feel like we should just answer the questions, but I'm pretty comfortable that most of, if not all of it, are stuff that you've covered off as part of this, this, this process, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've, we've made some really big changes to the review process over the last two years uh, and still making changes as we go forward. So still trying to tweak things, make things a little bit more efficient, a little bit better, better client experiences. So all of that we've been actively look at, looking at and continue to as we go forward. So, but it's been a, the, the big change was probably a couple of years ago where we sort of changed the way we looked at reviews holistically and then decided what we were going to do from there. So. Perfect. So let's, um, let's, I'm keen to get into the questions as much as possible because there's a lot sure. of them. But before we do, like, just in case for whatever reason people don't know you, can you give us a little bit of the, you know, who you work with, the kind of clients you help, how your business works, the kind of, you know, the team, the size of the business. Just give yep. us a two-minute overview. Uh, okay, so um, really very much holistic clients we work with now. We don't really work with any transactional clients at all. So every client we believe you need a holistic approach to, and that's the type of planning we like to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's really important. Um, I started the business back in 2006 with two clients from my garage. Um, I just bought my first house, just had my first child. Um, and uh, look, now we're six of us in the business. Uh, uh, I'm the principal advisor. I have an associate advisor that works very, very closely with me, Keith, who's, um, you know, we very much run a two-advisor approach to clients. Uh, and effectively four support staff. So, uh, and I'm not quite sure that's enough. But I'll come back to that. <laughs> and um, you, you also embrace outsourcing as well. So yeah. your team's uh, Manila based. Is that right? So I've got two two Manila, uh, Jen and Leslie. Uh, absolutely awesome. We we originally started with them going through an agency, and then very quickly took them off that, and we employ them directly now. Yep. So they work solely for us, uh, and that has worked really really well. Uh, obviously, your standard challenges with having an offshore team, uh, but it's partially onshore, partially offshore, and that for us works really, really, really well. So beautiful. Now, when you started the business, if I remember rightly, it, it, like a, a lot of people, I hear the stories, and when they start a business, it's, it's because there's something about the way or, or the business they were with before, or or they perceive they don't want to do it a certain way, and that drives them towards a certain model. Yeah, well, nice I came. I came from the UK in 2001. Uh, my wife's Australian, hence uh, why we came over here. Uh, she decided she didn't like the cold anymore, so we decided to move to somewhere warmer, which is fine. Um, but I actually uh, trained and did a lot of my training in insolvency uh, in the UK. So I came from quite a, let's call it, a negatively motivated uh, industry to yep. I really wanted to do something that was a bit you know I had a background in knowledge in finance and economics etc uh, and I really just wanted to do something a bit more positive uh, I'd done sort of 10 years in insolvency and although I earned, learned an absolutely an amazing amount uh, on that side I really just wanted to, a, a different more positive skew so I thought how can I adapt what I've learned to you know watch all these people do things they shouldn't do mm-hmm couldn't do well how do I flip that and make it into helping people uh, obviously grow their wealth and obviously achieve their objectives so that's really how what, what the catalyst was and that's when obviously I worked for a financial planning firm first uh, a particularly non-compliant financial planning firm I hasten to add this was in the 2001-2002 days when FSR had just come in this was one page SOAs before that and you know so it was interesting times uh, 
but then just decided I wanted to do it by myself. I thought I could do it better. I'd, I'd run a business in the UK, so I did have some experience in running a business, which was helpful, uh, but really just wanted to see if I could do it myself. And that's how it started. So. Beautiful. 2006, you kicked it off. And what kind of firm did you want it to be from the very start? Oh, I think I had great aspirations in terms of where I wanted it to be. Uh, but I think the reality was I was building a business from scratch and I think initially we, we were at the stage we, we would take whatever clients we could, to be honest, and we built the business very much like that. Yep. Uh, I, I'd always had aspirations of, of the holistic piece because I always believed that was the way to go. Uh, but the reality is when you build a business, you take what clients you can and you build it from there and you hope you can then develop it into the aspirational business you want it to be. Uh, I think it's very difficult to say oh, from two clients, I'm only taking holistic clients and that's all I'm going to do. At the end of the day, we've got mortgages to pay and children to feed and, you know, at the end of the day. So, so uh, but I think we're at a place now where we can genuinely say that's what we do. Uh, so it's taken a long time to get there. But uh, I'm very comfortable with the work we do with clients now and the type of work we do. Uh, so for us, that's been, uh, it's been a, a big journey, but there's a long way to go still. I still don't think we're done. We've got a long way to go. So. Okay. So you've been through a few iterations of the business. And I know we uh, originally one of the strategies you, you had is to bring in a junior advisors and sort of build them up. And, and, yep. and tell us a bit about sort of how it's evolved in terms of your thinking through those phases. Yeah, so uh, I, I suppose the idea was always to try and replicate me in the business. Yep. Uh, and uh, I think I made the mistake on uh, a number of occasions by trying to bring in perhaps younger advisors that maybe weren't quite experienced enough to take on the type of clients we were looking after, yep. to try and replicate uh, me in that regard. Uh, and but ultimately, it, it, it was successful to a point that it really wasn't getting the job done. Yeah. Uh, so that really culminated in where we got to a couple of years ago, where we made that wholesale change about how we're going to address clients. Uh, and that's what we've been doing since. So I really felt that I had to back myself. I, I think you've really got to turn where your skills lie. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, I kept, you know, obviously as business owners, financial advisors, uh, practice managers, we're often wearing lots of different hats. And I think it's important that at some point you've got to choose a hat and mm -hmm. it's not that you won't wear other hats, but there's always your favorite hat that you've got to go back to. Um, and that's, I think, where you should concentrate skills. And for me, and that's sitting in front of clients and uh, uh, being a financial advisor and talking strategy and helping people along that pathway. That's, I think, where my skills like. Other people might tell me differently, but that's where I think Because my perception is um, that that's your skill set. I mean, like, you're very good at managing uh, relationships, but you're, you're, you're also a bit like me. Like, you like to tinker. You like yeah. to play with the systems and processes. And, and I, did, you I find, that. did you find that you sometimes would drift into doing things that weren't actually important? And they just happen to be the thing. I think I still do from time to time. Um, I've, I've got a bit of a, I'm probably a bit like you. I, I, I like the technology space. I'm always trying to find ways of doing things a little bit differently, a little bit more efficiently. I do tinker in that space probably more than I should. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I think if you ask the staff, they would say, they would say that James does like to change things. <laughs> uh, but that's, uh, look, uh, you know, I think, Change is the price of survival. 
and it's you have to change and we're in some significant change at the moment so if you don't adapt you've got you've got no choice i love that i'm writing that down change is the price of survival it's uh as you heard me say a number of different times the whole thing about darwin supposed supposedly said evolution survival of the fittest but of course rubbish it's the most adaptable yeah i think Otherwise, so There'd be T-Rexes running around everywhere, right? Yeah, I think the test, if you, if you want to test that theory, now's the time to test it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember, you'd remember when FSRA rolled about. Yep. Um, and it's interesting, the businesses that were, were huge and successful before FSRA are not the businesses that were successful over the 10 years that followed. No. And you, you can look back there and you realize the genesis of the success at that point, and, and it was a significant period of success. Um, that was what they did straight away in that in that time period when it was coming in and they made the adaptation and those that didn't yeah they're not around anymore correct yeah so uh yeah certainly now's the time if you're going to change so two years ago yeah there's a line in the sand i believe we were sat in your boardroom we You've were done a lot of thinking about this what was what was the thinking and what was the what was the change of tack talk us through the thinking and, and, and the you know what it was so i i actually sort of go back to my um I used to watch my father work many years ago, and he was um, he was uh, in the insolvency industry as well. And I used to watch him basically just turn up for meetings, do the meetings, and then leave. Mm-hmm. And effectively, everyone else would do everything else. So, uh, and it, it worked really, really well because that's something he was particularly good at: was coming into the meeting, getting the meeting done, determining what was going to happen from a strategy point of view, and then that that was his job done. Right? Um, uh, and my, my thoughts around efficiency was, if that's where really where my skills lie, how can I potentially adapt that to what we do? You know, how do I turn up for a meeting, do the thing that I think I can add value, okay. but let other people that are probably better at other parts of the process do their <laughs> bit as well? Yeah. So um, the, the really, that's when we sat down and we, and we really came up with this, uh, you know, this... Uh, the set up, the show up and the pack up, right? Yep. It's splitting that review into three main stages um, and letting key people within those stages do the things that they're good at. Yep. So, you know, there's people in my office that are much better than me at certain admin. There's people that are better at phone calls. Some people are better at writing certain things than I am. Uh, there's people that are better at strategy and numbers. Um, but I would probably say that I'm probably one that stands out in terms of client engagement, in terms of sitting in front of clients. So, Let's get James doing that and let's build the process around that. Beautiful. And that's really what we've tried to do. And the genesis of that setup, chart pack up is, I think when we talked about it, we said, if you think about when they're filming adverts or movies, Tom Cruise doesn't turn up, you know, at six or five o'clock in the morning and help the cameraman puts together and, and, and you know, you basically, they set the equipment up, which takes a lot of time. And then Tom Cruise or whoever jumps in the scene and then he, he's gone. Right, and then they, they, they grab the film and they edit it and they set it up and and you know it can be years before you see a film, and I think this is the key thing is if you're the talent, and this isn't being egotistical. It's the bottom line: there's no one else in your business who can do what you do, and if you do more of it, retain clients. We will talk about pricing, but if you're if you're there setting up the camera and you you know you're doing the pack up afterwards, your capacity is going to be going to constrained, right? Yeah, and I think it's it's a little bit more than that in that you have to. And this is, again, something I've learned more and more over the last two years that I've done more and more reviews is you've really got to prep yourself for a meeting. Yeah. There's a real lack, I think, and I used to do this and I was guilty of it myself, of not getting myself in the mind, right mindset for a client meeting. 
Gotcha. Having a very, very clear objective of, as to what I'm going to take out of this meeting before I even go into it. Um, and actually, you know, if, uh, if you think a, a client meeting could be worth $10,000 a year to you, mm. why wouldn't you be spending at least half an hour to an hour of your time prepping for that meeting? I just, it, it sort of clicked with me like two years ago. I, I need to prep properly for these meetings. Um, and I, and I, I still think we, you're continually trying to develop that preparation process just to make sure that we are fully versed before we go into that meeting. So there's three areas I want to touch on and there's a bunch of questions we're going to pull out along the way. I wanted to talk about the review. I definitely want to talk about the pricing because it's a, it's a very, very impressive story. And then I think we don't, we can't talk about all of this without talking about the time, which mm-hmm. getting, that, getting the message from people that oh, I don't have time for projects and you realize that Jesus, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we do, which is about finding time and getting efficiency. It, it worries me because if, you, yeah. if nothing's going to change, you know, you're not going to get less busy, are you? Which, no. which do you think is, which should we start with? Which should we talk about first? Which was the kind of catalyst for it all? Uh, I suppose in terms of the pro, if, if you're talking about reviews, I suppose the time management piece and getting that right is, I think, absolutely essential for getting uh, the whole process working. Okay. So you happy with start with that? Yeah, let's start with that. So I think George, I wanted to know, is it George? I want to know how many reviews do you do a year? So I think we're about 148 at the moment. So 148 reviews. Yeah. And some uh, of those. That's over 40 weeks. Yeah. Which gives, uh, gives you, you know, blocks where you don't do anything. Well, that's deliberate. Obviously, everyone's got to take time off and uh, downtime. Obviously, I've got three children, so I'd like to try and spend some time in school holidays with them. Uh, so we're trying to build stuff around that. Uh, obviously, Christmas shutdown, it's mandatory. And then you've got your PD days and all the other stuff that you've got to do, right? So uh, that sort of stuff. So we try and do it over 40 weeks, uh, which tends to work quite well at the moment it's pretty hectic uh, when we're doing reviews but yeah. uh it seems to be working okay i, I reckon we're pretty much at our max though hmm. at the moment. so you reckon 140 is about uh, the other someone else on the call is greg i think he's here uh, it's funny when you meet people who are busy but they're in their they're in their rhythm it's amazing what they can get through it's i think when people get out of rhythm or they're not batching or they're not approaching it right we've got this sprint that's when it gets really, really hard. And Greg, you, I know, I think you do around about 160. Is that right at the moment? Anyway, if you yep. here, I'll tell you. So let's, let's, let's talk about the time management because um, there have been times in our coaching engagement where, you know, sometimes you turn up and you're like the Zen Buddha floating above it all. And other times, yeah, you're stressed. There's a whole bunch sure. going on. Sure. Um, what are the things that you did or what are the mindset shifts or the habits you adopted so you can get to a point where 148 plus managing the business, plus marketing, plus networking, plus doing the work, feels like it's, it's doable? Uh, so well, there's a couple of different areas I'll touch on for this. I suppose the first one, which no one likes talking about much, is probably emails. Um, okay. But just I tried to look at the really big things that sucked up my time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so email. So I, I run pretty much zero inbox. If anyone knows what that is, it's effectively you end up with no emails in your inbox every day. Right? And you've got to get really, really good at making decisions on what to do with emails. Yep. Um, so there's a book, uh, Getting Things Done by... Dave Allen, isn't it? Dave Allen, that's it. Yeah. Uh, he sort of takes this to a whole new level. 
so that's something that I practice, and uh, that's and not having internal emails between staff mm. that cuts down on uh, email traffic. Yeah, so tend to use Slack uh, for internal communications, uh, which is much quicker and, uh, and less cumbersome. Yeah. Uh, so the email side has been an important part of cutting down on what I do and making sure the right emails that are coming into the practice are going to the right people. Yep. So there's no point in CCing people in for the sake of CCing. If they don't need to know, <laughs> they don't know them though. So that's been a, a big part of it. Yeah. Yep. Can you hear me? Yeah. 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 Chris, uh, was, Chris was saying, well, that's what the delete button is for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so the other one, there's probably been a big game changer for us is the uh, batching of our time, batching yeah. of my time, I should say. So the week is split into Tuesdays and Thursdays are review days. And uh, Wednesday is new client day. Yeah. Uh, Mondays is GBT day, which is getting things done. And Friday is GTD. Yeah, uh, and Friday is effectively growth and marketing day. Love it. Which is where I might go out and see centers of influence or you know anything to do with sort of growing the business. So my diary for is now completely scheduled that way. Yeah. So no reviews are booked on Monday. Love it. No reviews on Fridays. Mm -hmm. uh, only reviews on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Okay. So that's been a, uh, a big help to making sure that you're in that mo right mindset for the whole day. So if I'm in review mode, I'm in review mode all Tuesday. And if I'm in review mode, I'm in review mode all Thursday. So you and how do you, how do you, sorry to interrupt you, but how do you make sure that firstly your clients, uh, your, your team respects the time they don't try and sneak things in. And secondly, probably most importantly that you respect it have a big stick that I beat people with. No, no, <laughs> the, the, the team are really good at it now. So, so in our, um, in terms of reviews, we try and uh, pre-arrange all reviews a year in advance. Right. So at the moment, I can look in my, so we use Teamwork as our uh, workflow system. And yeah. System. I can look in there at the moment and I can tell you when any clients, when the next review is to yep. the date. And that'll be a Tuesday or a Thursday, I guarantee you. So, Love it. Uh, so now, the reality is clients will move appointments, right? But yeah. at least they know that this is roughly when the next day date for their review is going to be. Yeah. Uh, so that's been a, a, a big win for us on that side. What would you say uh, if you had a rough percentage of um, clients who tend to reschedule? This is those who just stick to it. It's probably a about uh, this is a guess but it, i reckon it's about 20 to 30 percent but it would be by a day or two it's not massive they're not and it's actually quite manageable from a because we're starting the process five to six weeks before yeah we tend to be able to juggle things accordingly now so the over the overflow day is the Wednesday. So if I don't have any new clients on Wednesday, I can utilize that as a review day if I need to. Yeah. So you've got to have some movement here. You've got to have some adjustability. That's the thing about the ideal week. And I love the ideal week too, Chris. But one of the things is as soon as usually Easter just blows the whole thing up. And I, I think you've got to have that ability to move it around. I, I, I love to do the ideal month. 
and then be able to go, right, I need four review days. I need eight review days. I need four client days. I need, and then you can kind of adjust because February can tend to screw everything up. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that you, as well as having the reviews pre-booked in advance, you've got about a five to six week runway. Yeah. Talk about, can you tell us a bit about the practicalities of how that works? Yeah. So obviously this is part of the setup process. So we'll have a review date in mind for the client, which they will already know about. Uh, and the runway or the run up to that is generally starts about five or six weeks. I can't remember if it is five or six weeks, okay. but it's roughly that. Um, I could look, but, uh, and the idea is then uh, there's a, an email sequence that starts and goes out to those clients. And a lot of that is about uh, getting obviously information from them that may have changed, uh, updating certain information we need from them, uh, uh, us providing them with things that we might have to update the FSG as part of, you know, for this compliance stuff that needs to happen as well. Uh, really just getting them prepped, ready for uh, that review date. So if anything does flag prior, we can obviously deal with it and it doesn't ultimately uh, affect the review. Um, so that gives us enough. It's really just about giving us time to obviously uh, avoid delaying the review as well as getting all the information we need prior to doing the reports uh, and the analysis of their situation uh, before we sit down with them. Love it. Um, I wanted to ask actually, George, this, this, I'm going to pull this question out. I've got it. By the way, I've got everyone's questions in front of me. I'm going to, I'm going to get through them all, but George's is relevant to what we're talking about now. Obviously the length of time it takes you to do reviews and how many you do in a day is a big part of the efficiency and the batching. Can you give yeah. us a bit of, a bit of an overview of how long yours take to actually deliver them and, and the, you know, how many you get fit into a day? Uh, I like to do two because, but I can do three. Mm-hmm. Uh, threes. Uh, I don't know if any. A lot of the advisors will understand when you're pretty in full flow in a, a review meeting, it can be quite mentally draining. Yeah, absolutely. I, I tend to find that if you do a couple of hours with a client twice in a day, it can be quite. If you do three times, it can be quite draining mentally. So yep. roughly an hour and a half, I reckon, uh, to two hours, depending on the client. You know, probably half an hour. That's just your standard chatting, rapport building catch up and then obviously into the review. Uh, so two is ideal. Uh, three will do. You wouldn't day. want to do, you wouldn't want to too many back to back three days, right? No. And, and, uh, and the team are really good at spacing them. So for example, I might have one at 8am. I'll have another one at maybe 12 and another one at four. Maybe okay. if they, if I do need to do three, cause I think you need that little bit of time to re-prepare yourself downtime from the last one and then re-prep yourself for the next one. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Matt, Matt's asking, is it one review per year per client? It's actually a mixture, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so it's a really good question. I think with the compliance world we're now in, we actually only promise one review now as part of our, uh, uh, our, uh, actually our agreements. Uh, but we often can deliver more than that uh, with certain clients. Uh, the reason we haven't promised more with certain clients, of course, is we now know from an ASIC point of view that if you say you're going to do two reviews and you don't do them, refund. You've got a refund. So yeah, yeah. It's better to underpromise and overdeliver. Yep. I think now than ever before. But all our clients know that the, the main review meeting is a big unpack of their situation. So it's quite an extensive review. Yep. Almost like starting from scratch again. It's not quite like that, but it's you know it's obviously that's part of the review. And then uh, obviously we we might well have video conferences with the client throughout the year. Most of my 
top clients I'm talking to probably on the phone every couple of months anyway, because they'll be yeah. a casual conversation or something along those lines. So uh, yeah, it's, it's one promised, uh, which is a re- what we call a major review. And then there's multiple other touch points throughout the year. Um, Matt's question is really relevant as well. How are the delivered office virtual? Do you go to them? Do they come to you? Is there, are there, is there rules around that? Uh, yeah, so when I started uh, many years ago, that it was obviously the industry was quite a lot about going to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more than coming to us now. And we're very assumptive about our review meetings. It's the, the diary booking is for them to come here. And if they can't come here, then there needs to be a reason for me to go there. So I obviously have some elderly clients I look after, and I will go to them because it's, you know, obviously just logistically better for them. I have yeah. some business owners I will go to biz- their businesses' addresses because that makes sense but they get charged accordingly. Love it. Yeah, a lot. whenever we've spoken about everything from pricing to reviews, I think a big part of what your strength is, is you're very assumptive. When you're putting a price or you're putting a service offer, it's more of a, this is what we're going to do, as opposed to, what do you think? Is that okay? And I think that's a real strength to just walk in there and go, I assume you're going, I'm your advisor and you're going to take my advice, so here's what we're going to do. Absolutely. I think you've got to, you know, it's a, it's a combination of, the, the base compliance work that you have to do for the client, the amount of interaction that you will have with that client, and then the strategy and the complexity that you're delivering to that client. Perfect. Um, I want to ask, you know. Chris has got a good question, but before we jump into that, man, if, you're, if there's someone on the program and they're listening to this and there are sort of three modules or habits on the program you think they should, and, and they're, by the way, that you're, they're in that space where they're doing too much, they're overwhelmed, they've got fuzzy, they've got all this stuff. And there's three habits which we could link to something they could check out on on the member site. What what are three that you think have been most useful for you? Uh, I think um, if you can crack the time management piece and then link that in with the priority piece, uh, you're going to go a long way to solving a lot of your problems. And this is something that I've learned over the years and certainly wasn't very good at it when I started. Um, Mm -hmm. I've got a lot better at it as time's gone on. So for me... uh, by batching, uh, by uh, managing emails correctly, and then also then prioritizing. So the, the, the old Stephen uh, Com, uh, Covey book, you know, um, where he talks about the different types of tasks you have, whether they're urgent or important. If something's urgent and important, you need to do it like now. If yeah. something's not very urgent, but it's pretty important, then you can do it later, right? Yeah. Um, if it's urgent but not important, you can obviously give, potentially give it to someone else to do. Yeah, ideally. And if it's not urgent and not important, then don't do it at all. There's a saying, and I, I think we've mentioned it before, what got you to where you are now is to get you to the next level. And I think a lot of people, particularly you know, if you think you're the person that can manage the emails and stuff, you're eventually going to get in your own way, right? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it's about prioritizing. So I'm, I'm very cognizant about what are the most important things I need to do today. Um, and trying to put them at the top of the list and make sure that I'm planning my day accordingly. So my first 30 minutes of the day are about planning what I'm going to do during the day. And then you do whatever it is you want to do, but just make sure you just have it structured accordingly. So, uh, and I'm trying to do the hardest, most important things first. I don't always do it, but generally I try to. Uh, because I want to get them out of the way and I feel like I've achieved something if I've then done those. But it's a really hard thing to to get yourself to do. It's a bit like going to the gym, isn't it? At six o'clock in the morning, you've got to force yourself to go. But you know, once you go and once you've done it, you're going to feel so much better at the end of it. But it doesn't, the interesting thing is it's hard at the beginning. 
but then it becomes a habitual thing. Like how many times do you jump in and you just sit down at the desk and you open the inbox, the email, you just, you're not even thinking about it. And the problem is as soon as you open the inbox, it's everybody else's demands are right there in front of you. And you know, it's, it's full of urgent stuff and very rarely does stuff come into your inbox, which is important. So don't open the inbox. So I don't open the inbox in the first, like I know a lot of people are very productive. Do not open their inbox until at least 10 o'clock. Yeah. Uh, do what you, what's important to you first. Uh, so that, I suppose those are the key things. So the time management piece, which I've, again, is a skill when you, you work on, it's something I've developed over time uh, with the batching, etc., which is yep. good. Email, uh, and then obviously just really just planning your day from a, it's really basic stuff, right? This is not rocket science, but it's just that habit forming things that you need to do. It um, is, yeah. And the problem is as soon as people get busy, like now, what's the first thing that goes out the window is the habits. Yeah. Do you, I don't like the word busy. I don't like the word busy. I, I basically, you know that story I told about, you know, people, someone you're on the laptop, kid walks in, play with me, and you go, I'm too, I can't, I'm too busy. And the second scenario is the same kid walks in with a 10-inch nail sticking through their foot. You, you drop everything, right? And the difference between the two is you're actually lying the first time. You should have said <coughs> playing with you is not as important to me as what I'm doing right here and now. And, and the truth is that if you're too busy, it's actually too busy to do something. It means it's not a priority. And sometimes when you're deep in, this, in the work, we, we, must, we're just, we have really bad at uh, identifying priorities. You know, it's the whole, when you need even alligators, <laughs> you don't think to drain the swamp, right? Yeah. And I, I think uh, we've tried to what does i often wonder what a client hears when you say you're busy what do they actually hear are they are they hearing that well you haven't got time for me so it's an interesting word busy because we, we use it so frequently with everyone and we all do it we're all guilty of using it but I often say you know if a client says how are you and i say i'm busy does a client think that then that i don't have time for their needs i don't know i it's an interesting interesting question I, I come from perspectives particularly when i'm working with a business and and part of the problem we're trying to solve and often the first problem we're trying to solve is we need to create capacity and we create projects and it's like the project is there pricing does it uh processes do it delegation does it and then you know a couple of weeks later you check in how's it going i've been busy and you kind of tell you an error because it's like the project we're, we're doing is the thing that's supposed to free up your time so we can do other stuff and then a month later we're having to do a bit of an intervention because there's all this cool stuff you want to do, which is going to increase revenue and lead flow, but we just can't get past this. All we need is two hours or three hours a week just to do that. And then you'll create 10, 15, 20 hours. Of it. it drives me nuts. It really does. Hey, um, one final question. Let's get on to the review, shall we? Yep. So Chris just wants a quick run through of uh, what backend process do you use to compress the admin and document prep time? Good question. So uh, our workflow and processes are all built in teamwork. So that's the primary place where we're operating our workflows. Yep. Uh, obviously, everyone's on that. Uh, all uh, commentary, discussions, and processes are built through that. Yep. Uh, so there's no. So if we're in the process, there should be no external communications through email. It should all be done through teamwork and through the process. Okay. So that cuts down on the traffic. Uh, you know, through external sources. Uh, so that tends to. Uh, documentation obviously that's required is templated in, in teamwork we can just pull out and adapt where we need to okay so all that stuff sits in there ready to go yeah. uh, so there's a it's a it's a bouncing ball right so it's you know 10 steps or whatever the steps will be for each part of the review uh, and everyone follows that in order so, perfect and document generation are you i know you're applying toying are you toying around with a few tools 
to do this. So are you talking about numbers or are you talking about uh, what, what sort of documentation? I'm assuming advice documentation uh, is what Chris wants to know. And hopefully, Chris, this, the audio has improved. I'm assuming Chris is talking about um, sort of proposals and SOAs. Yep. And so in terms of how we deliver any sort of interactive information to the client, we tend to use a, uh, a proposal or a presentation software called Quilla. Yep. And... Um, we actually present our SOAs through Quilla now. Uh, the, the actual document sits behind that. There is a effectively a Word document we utilize for compliance purposes, yep. uh, which is accessible to the client, of course. But our actual presentation of what our recommendations are or what changes are going to occur or is done through this Quilla app. So uh, a lot of that is templated. Obviously, the, then it's manually changed, but it yep. takes, you know, minutes to change stuff not not hours so Perfect. out of interest when you've implemented this sort of stuff what sort of time savings would you estimate that you get out of out of these habits every week that you didn't have before oh i reckon i'm probably getting a day back beautiful love it. i would i would suggest about a day yeah sweet uh quilla is q w i l r yeah okay actually james i might shoot you through we created a um a new checklist called time saver checklist right where we've taken the 14 most time-saving sort of uh, things you can do from the program and we, we add it all up and we reckon there's 36 hours worth of savings in there. So it's literally the four-hour work week, I'm hoping. Yeah, fantastic. So let's, you've got the time back. You've got your day back a week and now it's time to sort of jump in and nail the review. Talk to me about, um, talk to me about what, you've, what you did to, to make it more efficient and effective and, and, and in particular, better experience as well. So I suppose the, some of the efficiencies come through that initial setup uh, of the review. So making sure that, uh, that all the processes are templated and everyone's following the same process for every single review. So okay. there's very, very few deviations from that. Um, so that obviously creates regularity in terms of what we're doing. Uh, so yep. the team know what they're doing. So it becomes quite efficient from that point. So there's no... I suppose there's no bespoke nature to the setup process as such because it's we're running that the same for everyone. So that then allows us to uh, create some efficiencies through that. Um, so that's the first thing. Obviously, the, it then gives all that information will come to me and I'll, I will then spend you know half an hour to an hour of my time prepping myself for that meeting. So I'm taking all that information. I'm analyzing what are the key things that I need to concentrate on the review, what are the key uh, talking points. We have a standardized agenda that we run through, which is a standardized structure. Yep. Uh, and, and we keep that pretty simple. But what we then do is build on each of the subject matters within that standardized agenda. Yep. Uh, and uh, the review very much follows that uh, agenda from that point of view. So. We'll be talking, you know, all the standard stuff you would talk about in a review. You know, talk to me a little bit about, you know, your goals and objectives. How they've changed over the last 12 months? What key things have happened? You know, remember we had these goals 12 months ago. How have they changed going forward? Uh, what are the key things that have happened? Um, what's happened with your income and your expenses? How have those changed over the last 12 months? And we're talking, yep. so you're talking about all the things you should be talking about as part of a holistic review, you know? Right. Uh, your health, your children, your educational requirements for the kids or, you know. Uh, one thing we've concentrated quite a lot on with clients going forward now is the, um, the expenses side. So we spend a lot of time with the clients trying to nut out their expenses as much as we possibly can. Okay. Uh, 
the issue I've always had with statements of advice and reviews is when a client tells you this is what they spend, they're probably lying. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I don't, I actually, I'm a huge believer. I think once you write, write an SOA, I think the moment you write it, it's, it's wrong. Yep. <laughs> right. So th this is an inherent problem we have in the industry, which I don't think is going away. But so, so that, that's the issue I have with it. So it's about trying to get those accurate numbers as we can from the clients. Now, not all clients will play this game. Yep. Clients won't play it. That's fine. Some of our wealthier clients don't see the need for budgeting and uh, expenses management. That yep. said, I still think it's important. So let, let me ask the question here because I have, I've had this conversation with a lot of people and budgeting is hard. Getting people to tell the truth, not to mention analyze the data. What are your thoughts on, on asking people, like how much do you think you can save? Do you have a system for doing it? If they don't have a system to set them up with it, but base the engagement on them being accountable for delivering you a certain outcome. And let's say you say, I want you to save $20,000 over the next six months. Yep. And at the halfway mark, you notice they've only saved five and jump on a call and go, what's going on? Why are we halfway behind? In other words, putting the onus on them to deliver you a result and then jumping in if, if it's not happening. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think the problem is you, can, you can't make people do stuff. That's the thing. You know, you can, it's like going to a personal trainer. You know, he'll tell you what to do, but he's not going to do the push-ups for you. At the end of the day, you see, I've always had this slight issue with this whole best interest duty, that I, you know, which I thought we were doing or have been doing for the last 20 years. I didn't realize it was a new thing. But, um, but that said, I think it's interesting that before we have a best interest duty to the client, mm. the client has to have a best interest duty to themselves. Jeez. Right? Yeah. If a client hasn't got a best interest duty to themselves and their family, you're certainly not going to deliver it for them. So I think at the heart of this, there has to be a client's willingness mm. to actually go down this path and say, okay, I'm prepared to make some changes. It's not for me to tell them to keep Foxtel or get rid of Foxtel. Yeah. But if their goal is I want to be here in 20 years, they need to be, you know, and they need to cut their expenditure by 10,000 and they're not prepared to do that. That goal can't be that important. I, I, I agree. Like one of the things, obviously what I do is people tell me they want accountability. The truth is no, like if I was to give, you know, full on accountability, it, it doesn't feel nice. In actual fact, a lot of the time people want the results of accountability. Uh, they don't necessarily want me on their back, you know, telling them, have you done this? Have you done this? Because what it does, it creates a negative feedback loop. Yep. Um, but the, and that's the challenge. You've got to tell people. So if, if this is the goal and we agree to engage in a certain way, if you, if you don't hit your goal and you don't engage with me, do I have the permission to call you on the behavior? Mm. Because you can't, as you said, you can't drive people to do uh, something they don't want to do, but you can remind them that they told you they wanted to do something and they're not behaving that certain way. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So it really comes down to how important those objectives are and what they're prepared to do to get them to those objectives. So, and that's, that's really ultimately what it comes down to. But you can't make them do stuff. At the end of the day, you can only you know, do what you can do. Yeah, you can only remind them. Let's talk about the conversation because there's two pieces I, I really want to ask. One is uh, Matt's question around tracking progress. But the second question kind of ties into the experience. Yep. Like how motivate people? Because money is you know, money can be if it's if it's positioned wrongly, it can be demotivating. So the review, I'd imagine the way you do it is a big part of that is, is managing their energy, getting their focus back in, reminding them why they're doing it. Talk a bit about that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so I think that I think a part of this comes uh, about taking the focus away from the investment piece because yeah. everyone in reviews has talked about investments it's like you know the first question the client asks is how are we going how are my investments doing mm. what was the percentage we made last year yeah 
it's, I hate that question and I avoid it at all costs because it's ultimately, I'm not saying it's not important, but it's ultimately not the whole story. Yeah. So it's really about, so what we try and do with our reviews is uh, we actually redo what we call a current status report. So where they sit now compared to the where they were last year. Uh, are they tracking in the right direction? And we run this very simply through Excel spreadsheets. It's not an, anything very common. We present it in a different way, but yeah. um, actually in terms of how we track the numbers, not, not complicated to do, very, very simply. Mm. And are they actually tracking towards their goal? What's the gap analysis? You know, are they short? Are they over? Are they on track? Uh, has, it, has their goal completely changed? Yep. Because that can happen too, right? So really about focusing on what their objectives are <laughs> rather than the actual, uh, I suppose, the investment vehicles that are delivering that objective. And um, how important is it for that Excel report to be absolutely 100% accurate or the numbers that you're putting in front of people? I think it's relative to what they're trying to do. At the end of the day, accuracy around numbers, numbers change every day. So it, it, you can't be 100% accurate all the time. Yeah. But I think what's more important is they reaffirm what they want. Uh, and, and this is by both partners, by the way. I think it's really important that you get both partners on the same page mm. with this. Um, and, and they're ultimately committing to what they're going to do over the next 12 months. So you analyze what they've done. You might look at where there's some holes or things they could do better or things that we could do better. And then you're actually getting them to commit to what we're going to be doing over the next 12 months going forward. And that ultimately leads you into your engagement, your ongoing service agreement, right? Absolutely. What are you going to be doing going forward? So I think we spoke the other day about IWF have gone now to annual contracts yes. rather than ongoing service agreements. And ultimately, I think this is where it ultimately might end up. Mm. Is, you know, uh, what are the core things you're going to be doing for the client, but also what are, what are the additional things you're going to add on for the yeah. next 12 months? So what are you going to charge for that? I totally agree. I mean, I think if the way that, I mean, I, I'm, 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 I've always imagined that your reviews are less about you delivering and more about a conversation. Always. And they're telling you what they want and they're telling you where they think they're at and you're sort of correcting some things. And I think if, if you, as you have done, you can have a review where people want to come in and they're having this conversation, they leave knowing exactly where they are and clear on what they want next and, and they're excited and motivated. Retention is not going to be an issue. Paying the money is not going to be an issue because they perceive that what you do as being an integral part of getting them to the goal. Oh, absolutely. What, I mean, I suppose you've got to ask yourself the question, how do you want your clients to feel when they leave your office? Love it. How do you want them to feel, James? Do, do, you, do you want your clients to feel, well, I want them to feel God, I, I, about where I am. I feel better mm. about where we're heading uh, and I'm comfortable with what James has delivered for me over the last 12 months and I'm, and I'm, I'm, and I'm comfortable with what I can listen to over the next 12 months going forward. At the end of the day, what clients are really looking for is they're looking for you to reduce the complexity so they don't have to deal with it. Yep. They, they, they want, uh, obviously, you to take action. They want to feel safer about mm. where they are, right? Um, and they want you to help them with those trade-off discussions. Love it. Cool. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the pack-up. So what, 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 do you, what do you do after the appointment that enables you to sort of get out the pet lane faster? So pack-up um, starts with really me uh, debriefing or getting the information that I've learned from the, the uh, meeting out of my head. So I, yep. I, as the advisor, I feel I'm responsible for the file notes. Right? Yep. So even though Keith is in the meeting with me and backs me up in that, I'm very much responsible for that. So we, we actually record, uh, we do audio file notes. Uh, now, 
I don't know if you've done this, but a six or seven minute audio file note is actually quite a lot of words. Yeah, it is a huge amount. So it's interesting. You, I actually think you get far more detail with an audio file note than you ever will with a written one. So it's, in six minutes, you can get 1,000 to 1,400 words. Well, there you go. There you go. something I've learned today, you see? So there you go. Um, and then uh, as part of that, I then do, uh, we have a review uh, board uh, in a program called monday.com that we utilize, where, which takes me about 20 minutes to do. Yep. Basically, uh, it's some check boxes and some tick boxes that allow me then to pass on my thoughts to Keith and the power planning team about what I want to happen next. Now, it might be nothing or might be very little, of course, or it might be a full statement of advice. It depends. But that's the handoff. Perfect. Matt says, he's, Matt says he started audio file notes about a month ago. He's down to 20 to 30 minutes. That's way, to, yeah, that's way too long. I, are you using a framework, Matt? As in a, a set sort of bullet points you are. Maybe we need to chat about that because that's long file notes. Yeah, it's uh, good to have a template if you've got just to go. Uh, I actually use the agenda from the meeting and I talk to the agenda. That works for me. That works so, really well. I mean, yep. it, it also depends on your license, but a license has got a very specific way you want to do it. Sometimes it helps to get the basic structure, put it on one pager and, and go that way. But it, I think the agenda, it makes sense for a flow perspective. If you know what needs to be in there. Absolutely. Perfect. So that's, uh, and then the team will run the pack up and the pack up might be, as I say, an ROA, and it might be a, an ROA of no advice or no change. It might be a full SOA. And then we'll run off into the SOA process. Yep. And that will run from there. And obviously we'll then we'll deliver that advice back to the client. Uh, so, and at that stage, obviously, we're looking to reset the next review, beautiful, which is really important part of that process. So yeah. we're gauging the client and saying, look, we're going to do this same time next year. Uh, we'll, but in the meantime, we're going to have a call in October. Uh, and we're going to do the, obviously, we're going to do the implementation post review for that as well. Lovely. So, and again, how you used to do reviews versus how you do them now. Where's the efficiency gain? Is it taking you less time? Are you getting more done? Where, yeah, what's, the, what's been the benefit of the way you're doing it now? I think that if I was really honest, that the review process before was a bit ad, was a bit ad hoc mm. uh, and a bit bespoke, and you can't create efficiencies when it's bespoke like that. Uh, not unless you're charging a lot of money for it. Yeah. Uh, so now the the efficiencies just really come through replication of similar tasks right throughout the process. Uh, so that's worked really really well from that point of view. So that, that's really where the efficiency. It's a very strict process. That doesn't mean to say it can't vary if it needs, yeah. but you need to have your staff saying, okay, this is the way we do things and we're happy to run with this process. And if it needs changing, that's fine. We can change it. If there's bottlenecks, that's okay. We can solve them. Yeah. You've, got, you've got to start with a process and, and, and develop and morph it from there. So would you say that you're 50% more efficient? You're getting stuff done? Oh, probably, I would say probably 30 to 40, probably 30 to 40% more efficient than we were. Which, if you think about it, what, 148 reviews? But we're also, I'm also doing less of the work So because yeah. I've got the team set up the way. So my time, I've probably got over half of my time back in terms of reviews. 50% of your time back. Beautiful. And if and you add that with the time management stuff, uh, so you start to, you know, stuff I, I may be able to go and play golf one day again. <laughs> <laughs> Rather you than me, I'm terrible at golf, as you well know. <laughs> Let's talk about let's talk about the final sort of piece in the puzzle because uh, we had a conversation. Was it two years ago? Yep. No, it was, it was about, a, about, a, about a year and a half ago. And we said we looked at the shape of your business. Yep. 
and there was a certain amount of sort of um, legacy revenue. Yeah. And you made a decision at that point that you were going to assume it was gone. Yes. And started a process of transitioning clients across. And the review was a big part of that because ultimately, I think when we spoke about it, you said having a really good experience, being able to visualize it and give people that perspective was it was really the platform for then having that conversation about the transition. Talk us through the pricing. How did you do it? What were the results? Um, so just in some context, so my grandfather commissions about $42,000 a year. So it's not a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've sort of almost assumed that's gone and it's, it's sort of just dead money. And, and, and there is programs out there where people say, well, you should try and re-engage those grandfather commission clients. And I think there's a chance you could do some of that. But mm-hmm. the reality is that the, a lot of these grandfather commission stuff are, are not very active clients generally. So you're almost better. Yes, of course you want to try and re-engage them, but you don't put your hopes on it because it's not going to happen. So we went down a path of, because of the regulatory changes going through, we want to make sure that we're pricing our service accordingly uh, going forward. So we did a a repricing. We reanalyzed all the numbers, looked at the minimum cost to serve, uh, and then added in things like how many meetings we're going to have a year and complexities around it. And we came up with a price. Yeah. Then we went to, then every review meeting had then had a price conversation as part of that review meeting. Now, some clients, it was a small uplift. Some clients, it was a big uplift. Uh, all of those conversations uh, certainly started, when I first started doing it, I found it actually quite difficult. Yep. I'm actually, feel like I'm actually very competent doing it now. I, I don't have any issues about asking for more money. Sounds strange, mm. but because 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 I know the numbers and I know what it costs to serve, I'm very comfortable now saying we can't do this for less than that. And what is your minimum? James, uh, Matt said, are you happy to share your minimum cost to serve? Yeah, so we we, we know for for actual cost, this is without profit. Our minimum is about three thousand eight hundred for a, for a full for the, our service, and it does it does vary slightly. So really, our our base now is coming in. If you want to forty percent EBIT. On that, you really got to be looking at six thousand plus, I reckon, for clients. And yep. people, I've had lots and lots of people saying that's too much. And, and do you know what? It might be for some people. Yeah. I know what it. I've run the numbers. We've actually tracked through teamwork every task we've done on every review for the last twelve months. Love teamwork for that. And it's really and the numbers and I, I was actually really really surprised with the numbers because I didn't think the numbers would be that high. Now some of that. You know, I will say, of course, some of those numbers could be blown out through inefficiencies or specific things that happen with a client. But I still think that that's where the number needs to be. I reckon anything sub five grand a year ongoing, I think you're going to struggle. I really, I really, really do. I'll, I'll add to that. I think one of the biggest mistakes, and if anybody is sort of early stage, have you, have you got a, are you running out of time? I know we're going out. No, no. That's cool. Um, a lot of businesses start off and they go, okay, we'll start off charging cheap. And then later on in their journey, they decide they're going to increase the price. It's the wrong way around. It really is. Because you need at the beginning to get the resources in so you can invest in the team and the software. And then later on, when you start to get efficiency and hopefully, you know, you're getting a bit of niching. So you're starting to deal with regular problems for, you know, specific kind of people. Then you can start to compete on price. But I I think competing on price when you, particularly when you're going through a growth journey, it's, it's the hardest way of doing it. Yeah, so and we found that that uplift process that we've taken the clients through has been actually a, a really good experience mm. for a lot of clients. I mean, I'm surprised how little pushback we've had from that process. In terms of, 
I think about over the last 18 months, we've roughly had about $80,000 in uplifts. That's not including your uh, the new business that came in? No, no. That's just current clients doing reviews yeah. where we've had a, uh, about an $80,000 uplift. And then we've got about another 60000 in the pipeline at the moment. And that's uplift? Uh, that's, that's uplift as well. Yep. And then the actual new business you know we've we've obviously got new ongoing work where we've got new clients we've engaged there's probably another uh, 60 to 65,000 there beautiful uh, and in terms of what we've lost we've lost about 17,000 and i love the fact that you sat down and you segmented your clients love like indifferent not so much yeah well, uh, i think that that's a i actually had a client that um i've got to be honest i, I don't like working with very much yeah. at all and I, we went through the uplift price and I doubled, effectively doubled her fees. Yeah. She paid them. So, yeah. which was, I thought she was going to walk and she yeah. didn't. But I actually feel, because I'm getting, you know, I'm actually earning about seven and a half thousand from her a year now. I actually feel much better about our relationship. Funny that. Yeah. And I mean, I mean you do a lot of the modeling and things as well. So, the kind of client base you're not seeing there, you're actually realizing that they can afford to work with you and get the result they want better than yeah. their own. So, yeah. yeah. So Dude, this, this is, I mean, it's a great story. And I think, um, I love the fact that, you know, you just got better and better at, as you've gone at the conversation at, at really putting it on the table, because at the end of the day, the pricing model that we went through, it wasn't, we weren't making it up. That was what your business and you were pretty, you were tracking processes and you were like, is that the right number? Is that how long it takes? And it, it was, and the business was telling you, Dude, if you want to be successful, if you want to create capacity in your week, if you want to be able to do really good work with clients, that's what you need to charge. And at that point, you've got a choice. You can either change the business or change your attitude towards pricing. Yep. James, that's, been- I think that's the, re- that's the re- reality of where the industry is going, unfortunately. I, I'm not saying it's great for people that can't afford advice, but that's just the reality of the numbers in terms of what you have to do from a compliance point of view. It is. And obviously, the unintended consequences, realized or not, is that advice is, is, is going to become inaccessible to a few people and hopefully it'll go back the other way. But the reality is at this point in time, you know, everybody's got clients to look after. And in order for you to be able to do that, you've got to have a sustainable business model. Pricing is just a big part of that. Should we go through and just answer, clean up a, a bunch of the questions that, that have been sure. asked? James, this has been incredibly useful. You've been absolutely awesome. Uh, what have we got? Um, how many reviews can one planner manage? We kind of indicated that for you, 140, 120, 110, 100 feels like about the right amount. Yeah. Can I say on that though, I, I'd like to reduce that number, but make the reviews more engaging if I can, even more so. So yeah. I'd rather get higher fees, have less meetings and have the even better reviews as part of that if I can. Yeah. And that's something we're working on. So although that is a number, I think you could reduce that and make the meetings even more engaging. I caught up with a gentleman called Keith Jones while I was in the Philippines and he his strategy was he'd go in and, 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 and buy a business and then every year just, uh, you know, say goodbye to the bottom 20% of the clients. Now, yeah. whatever your view on that, he built a high net with business very quickly. Yeah, sure. Um, meaningful for clients. Hopefully, Rachel, we covered off on how to make them meaningful. James, any thoughts on what's the number one thing that you would do in order to make the reviews more meaningful? More meaningful. Uh, I, I, I really... I, I think it's ultimately about the psychology of how they leave the, the room, right? It, it's, it's not about the numbers, but they, they've got to feel like uh, they're encouraged to do what they're, they're doing, that they've got some, I actually think it's nice that they've got someone they can blame as well, you know? <laughs> that's, all, that's why you have a buyer. Uh, but they, it's really about a confidence thing. They've got to feel confident about leaving that review that 
they've spoken through the trade-offs that they've got to work out from an objective point of view. Yep. Uh, they know what action they've got to take. You've helped them reduce the complexity around the situation. Um, and that, that's really what it is. So it's quite, I think it's a, the fluffy stuff is important. People need to feel a certain way when they leave, I think. Mm. Oh, I, I think if, if you are not having an emotional impact on clients in your first appointment in a review, you, you're not delivering an experience. It, it, and that's not just opinion. That's, that's back. People need to feel something. They need yep. to be moved emotionally in order to, yeah, to be impacted. Absolutely. Matt, Matt asks, how much contact is required in terms of your ongoing service? Uh, I think if you've got, obviously the, obvious, the process, will, the, the review process is what it is. So there's obviously the contact through that. Uh, I think, I think you should have a, an idea of what your touch points for those clients are throughout the year. Now, some of those will be automated and some of them will be personal or manual. Uh, I, I have a, apart from obviously the review, I have an absolute six monthly call I have with all clients as part of that. That's in there. And, and then there's a, a plethora of emails that you'll generally get from clients throughout the year anyway. Mm. So, you know, at the end of the day, and, and then also the social media side, I mean, I'm not a big, Amanda, my wife does all that in the business, but the social media side I've realized is important that your clients understand that you're there mm. and you're delivering something. It's not about getting new clients for me. It's about providing my current clients with information that they might find useful. So all those points of contact are continual nudges to the client. So when they think about financial planning, they think about you first. Yeah. And that's where your referrals come from. Top of mind. Absolutely. And I, that's the other thing. I was told the other day, you can't use referrals anymore because it's a negative word. <laughs> You've got to use introductions. <laughs> I like that. Introduction. <laughs> so anyway. No, that's good. And I, I look on that, you know how I, I'm pretty passionate about the client engagement thing. And I think people see it as a big, oh, I've got to do a blog or I've got to do a video. But once you get into it, you realize that, you know, you can do a short video, send it out. You don't have to top and tail. You don't, it doesn't have to be perfect. And it, it's a bit of you going out to 200 people, which is much easier than making 200 phone calls. Absolutely. Uh, it, can, it can be anything as mm. long as it's relative, you know, and it relates to them in some way, shape or form. It doesn't really matter what it is as long as you're still the number one thing they think about when they think about financial planning. It doesn't mean, by the way, it doesn't mean you don't make the phone calls. It just means no, you, no, don't no. Have to, you don't have to rely on that as your only means of, of continuing to be in contact. You could do a, you can actually do a client calendar of almost what those touch points are throughout the year as a standard. And then obviously you could bespoke that for certain clients and certain packages, depending on what you're doing. But it's, now I do a big budget update. Budget's my big thing I do every year. And my budget update goes to my clients. It's on their email at 6am on the Wednesday morning Yeah. after the budget, because I want to be the first person. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just a thing I've always done. No, it is. I don't want anyone else to get there first. I want to be there first. Right? So, the first in my inbox. Yeah. Okay. James is up. <laughs> Um, Zoraida, good question. Pack up. Do you check the ROA SOA and are you involved in the implementation of that? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's, uh, some interesting developments on that. We've actually just uh, literally just implementing a new system to check our SOAs from a regulatory and a best interest duty. Um, it's a piece of software called Tick, and it uh, pretty much does, it doesn't do the whole thing, but yep. it, it, it does about, I reckon about 70% of your reading of an SOA for you from a regulatory point of view. Wow. So does, it, does it have SOA on the front page? Does it have your ABN on it? And it's something they code, and we're literally going through it now. Uh, that, to me, is going to help save me a huge amount of time, I think, in terms of checking SOA, because, yes, right, I, I do check them, because you have to. So you got to. Keith often checks it first, uh, and then I'll have a look over it uh, as well. But this is obviously going to cut that time down. Um, and I think tick is 100 bucks a month. Whoa. It's... 
now we're self-licensed so we can obviously go down this path some people won't be able to go down this yeah. path but for me not uh, what it means is, is that we don't have then a sample of soas that are checked we have every soa checked that's good that's really reg tech is is big eh? and look asic like that sort of stuff right they like to see a framework whereby you're trying to be as compliant as you can i I don't want to read 60 pages of SOAs, you know, every time. If I can get someone to do some of the heavy lifting on that, then so be it. So, Ryder, if you recall when we had uh, uh, dinner down in um, Canberra and your friend, I can't remember his name, and I turned around to him and said, he was a lawyer. I said, how do you, how do you deal with reading through so many documents? And he says, well, you know, in a year one lawyer, it takes you eight hours to go through a document. But after the second year, it's three or four. And then eventually you can look through a document and you look at the structure and you're looking for the deviation. Yep. And I think that's one of the ways, that, I mean, it's the way that the software works, but I think, you, again, structure, if you have structure to your documents, it makes it easier to go through as opposed to making them up every time. Um, couple, are you cool for a couple more questions, James? Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, Jess has got a good question. Uh, if I can just find it, it, it is, what is your main source of leads and new clients and what's your current growth and retention rate? Very specific questions, Jess. Yeah, uh, so growth rate, uh, so main source of clients is referrals, 100%. Yep. Uh, we have obviously various uh, centers of influence, uh, lawyers, accountants, mortgage brokers. We're very specific with them about the type of clients we want. Uh, and that's where the majority of our clients come from. Uh, look, we don't, I'll be really honest, we're not trying to grow ridiculously. I'd be, I'm very happy if I get one client a month. It's all I really need. And, and if I can get that client, you know, that client somewhere between an ongoing service agreement between seven and 15 grand a year mm. that's where i want to be so I'm, I'm not trying to hit the lights out in terms of growth rates i'm quite happy to do this in this new world that we're in i think you've got to be very cautious about how you grow organically yeah type of clients you take on absolutely i wouldn't be buying anything right now i think acquisition is difficult at the moment yeah. um a retention rate uh well in terms of the uplift you saw we uh, i think those numbers i gave we lost about 17 grand so I think not, when I looked at the numbers, you had 90, I think you lost six clients, out, sorry, like five that, clients yeah. out of 116. So it was like yeah. 97% retention. And that's okay. That's, that's fine. Okay. That's absolutely fine. And we will lose more going forward. And that's okay too. The, the whole thing is when we did your pricing, the question we asked is, would you rather have, you know, would you like to, would you mind losing 20% of your client base if you could match the revenue because of the uplift? And you're like, no, that would give me time back. Yep. And the same is true of new clients. If you're bringing on, you know, if every single client's saying yes, you know, three clients are coming in and they're paying 3000 each. And your option is, if you look at the numbers and it's right for the client and, and it's right for you know, the business, you could charge 5000 and you get two of them. You're going to be able to do better work. And that's where we're at right now. And it's, you can disagree with the, the affordability of advice, but, you know, when you step back and you look at it commercially, that's the reality of the situation. Yeah. A couple more questions and we'll let you go. <laughs> How do you present the review ROA SOA? How do you present it? <laughs> Yeah, so it's actually the, the core document is a Word document, uh, which is, is not what we present, though. Now, we re the reason we do it in a Word document is so it can be checked by this reg, check, uh, reg tech system because it yeah. has to be in Word. That sits behind what we present, which is done through Quilla. So that's a summary of that. A lot of that is templated. Uh, and then we obviously then put the, uh, so, you know, we put the color and the detail around that. It takes... Uh, but once the SOA or ROA document was done, uh, it takes about another 20 to 30 minutes to do that presentation document, which we can either then present to the client or mm -hmm. we can set through a link. And they can actually accept it digitally. Right. So 
we don't necessarily need to present it to a client in person if we don't want to, or we can do it online or yeah. But I think how we present SOAs and ROAs is an important thing, not probably for today, but <laughs> something we could talk about again. Yeah, it's um, because I think it's most documents are very unengaging. Yeah. So I think we need to work on that, all of us, including me. So. I agree. I think the visual side. Um, Zoraida, how do you get rid of clients you don't want to work with? Uh, well, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Uh, I mean, you, obviously, you can price them out. That's one way of doing it. That doesn't always work, though, as I explained earlier. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I think you've just got to be really honest with clients about how you can service them going forward. Uh, I think if they are prepared to pay the fee, then they should have a right to stay as long as you want to work with them. Uh, but often you'll find clients coming off a, a $2,000 annual review fee and trying to jump that to six or seven is a leap too far often for yeah. some. That sometimes you, you can, it depends how, how much, I really believe it depends how much you like the client as well. Mm. Uh, I mean, sometimes you'll do a transitional thing with a client to get them up to the right level because you actually really like the client and you want to work with that client. Uh, but I think it is difficult to just say to a client, I don't want to work with you anymore. I mean, one way you can do it is say, look, there's been a lot of change in the industry and one of the things that's happening is more businesses are having to really focus down. And the truth is that uh, the kind of work we're doing now is 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 moving in a different direction from the kind of work we've traditionally done for you. And it's, you know, I don't think it's in your best interest to can to continue to work with us given the fee, you know, we would need to charge to continue to do that work because it's not our sweet spot. And what I'd like to do is help find you somebody who can do the work and, and can do it at a, at a price that I think is appropriate. So that's that's kind of a sweet way of doing it. Web, website for Tick, any idea? Sorry? Tick, the, the software. Any idea what the website is? Uh, I think it's t-i-q-t-i-q-k-i-o there you go ian's all over it being a being of a power planning persuasion love it there you go i'm just you sound like you're on a bit of a growth path if i don't mind saying so how do you stipulate what types of clients you work with through referral partners are your referrals formalized formalized and what would be the essential referrals from current referral partners versus referrals from clients very specific how do you how do you tell client uh, referral partners what kind of clients you want uh, well, I think it's been easier since the Royal Commission, actually, because we sat down and we've been quite specific with uh, referral partners and saying, look, we're on this holistic approach now. These are the type of clients that we typically deal with. These, this is the process that we go through with a client. Uh, and I think you've got to be quite clear of the process you take them through. Mm. That way you can, uh, they get an idea of what sort of clients would sit. Uh, yep. um, but yeah, you've got to be quite specific, I think, about what you want because uh, I think clients, uh, centers of influence are, are great. They want to do the right thing and they want to refer, but they'll mm. often just refer anything if okay. they think the value. So you've all often got to say to them, look, thank you very much for that last referral, but it's not the type of client we generally deal with. Just want yeah. to make, you know, and give, and give them that positive feedback. And that's why I tend to meet with them uh, as regularly as I can to talk through the type of clients that we're working on together and the type of clients we want to work with going forward. So. I think sometimes communicating the problems that you help people with. So I, I, the kind of things that I help people with are when they've got this problem, this problem, this problem, and the people who tend to have that problem who I can help best are this. Yeah. People tend to spot problems, um, you know, is a more effective way, and that's usually tied to a kind of person. Yeah. Um, referrals, formalized referrals. How do you reward people, and Helen wants to know, do you pay referral fees? Absolutely not. No way. No, I, uh, I really have... I, uh, for a long time ago, I used to, but I, I don't now at all. And uh, everything we do referral is on a uh, just uh, 
people are the right people for the job. If they want their clients looked after and they want the right people to do it, we're happy to do that, but we're not going to pay a fee for it. There is a hundred different ways of delivering value to each other. That's got nothing to do with money. I'd actually argue, you know, you can use your network skills. You can train the team up. You can do marketing together. You can help each other. It doesn't have to be about the money. And I think I personally agree with you. I think money confuses the issue. And it's conf- well, look, ultimately it's getting more and more conflicted, right? So yeah. it's becoming more and more problematic. So we, we generally don't go down that path at all. And final question on referrals, percentage of referrals for current from partners versus clients. Uh, I reckon it's probably about 50, 50 at the moment. Oh. I, I, I heard the, actually, I heard from a, another colleague of mine that they, uh, they run a private wealth company, a sort of higher net worth. Yep. They uh, put out an email to their top 20 clients saying, um, look, we really appreciate the referrals that you've sent us through over the last 12 months, but we're closing our book for 12 months because we're just, uh, <laughs> they got smashed. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's sometimes this, it depends on how you how you're talking to your clients about it. Um, so if you say to your clients, "I'm busy," they won't refer you anything, right? So I think you want to you got to be careful what you wish for sometimes, mm-hmm. and, what, uh, and, and what you speak. So I think it's about fifty fifty. Um, uh, but I'm pretty agnostic about where they come from. I don't as long as you know that they are the right type of client. So that's, sounds a bit snobbish, doesn't it? I don't mean it like that. But. No, I mean there's. There's certain types of people you help best and there's certain types of people that you, you're probably going to be drawn to help because you're that kind of person, but sure. like it's opportunity cost, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mate, this has been as always totally engaging. I just wanted to jump in and, and, and I'll, I'd like to get some final words from you before we go. Uh, reviews, time management, pricing, what's yep. coming up in the next six months? Let us know what you think. Uh, I think it's, well, I think there's, it's probably unfortunately going to get worse before it gets better. But I yep. think the other side looks amazing if we can all get there from an industry point of view. I really, really do. I was talking to a friend of mine in the UK last week, and I know they lost almost 70% of advisors when they went through RDR in the UK. Mm. Uh, but I actually think the other side looks really good. <laughs> if we get through this next couple of years, I think it looks really, really, really positive. I agree. So, um, and I, I think now that, I think if we can all, uh, get rid of that word busy and start concentrating on actually delivering some services to clients. Uh, you know, as I say, it's uh, everything in business is negotiable except quality, right? I agree. I've got uh, it written down here. If you're, if you're overwhelmed, six steps, work out what you actually need to do between now and you know, the end of the year, schedule time and block it out in the diary. Like, like you do, James, get yep. focused. Don't get distracted. Don't try and do it in between meetings. Get just the information you need and nothing more on how to do it get it complete as quickly as you possibly can. And then finally, yeah, make sure you're managing capacity. And as I said, pricing, as you know, is one of the biggest levers. You can literally yeah. increase your revenue. Same thing. Dude, this has been amazing. Anything else you want to say? Uh, probably the, just the last thing is I'll just say with all the reviews and all the contact you have with your clients, there's really no substitute for personal contact. I don't think, I think it really is the, the backbone of what we do is actually talking to clients as, you know, rather than emails and all those things are great, but if you, there's no real substitute when you can actually talk to a client. So I think that's where we're trying to strive going forward. So that's all I've got. Love it. And if you free up your time, guess what you can end up yeah. doing? Absolutely. Um, Jess said, thanks for all your answers. You really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Uh, Helen, thanks you for the most informative session. Thank you for sharing and being real. Yeah. You're as real as botulism, right? Um, Jess, <laughs> I love the honesty of this situation. Yep, Alan says just his honesty and being real about his process. Yeah, James is pretty real. Uh, he's a model for the industry to replicate. Totally agree with that, Ian. Enjoyed the conversation, said Jess. That's awesome. Keep it coming. And Michelle said thanks. He pricing and review process point, process pointers. 
were the most real. Rachel wants to clone you. <laughs> God. Wow. That. That's, that's good. Zoraida <laughs> says, never say busy. Yeah. Do you know what? I, used to, when, I, when I was back at AMP, everybody used to wander around that bug building and you go, how are you? And they go, I'm really busy. I'm really busy. And it, was, it just drove me nuts, as it would everybody. You, you know, the other problem with that is you get, I've got a friend of mine who does the opposite. He actually tells you really how he is. <laughs> now, that can be quite confronting. <laughs> so it goes the other way too, right? So yeah. when people say, fine, fine. Yeah. It's probably better than the alternative sometimes. It's like when Rachel, whenever I go to Holland, oh, I've not been there for a while, but you ask, how are you? They, they literally go, well, you know, today I did this and did that, and yeah. they give you the whole story. No, 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 it's, it's, it's just, it's the same. Fine, fine would have been sufficient. James, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, mate. Um, thanks to everybody for, for coming along. As I said, if you, if you want to connect with James, uh, if you want to sort of chat a bit about where he, where he does, I know James is business on a bit of growth path, so if someone out there thinks they've got, you know, opportunity to sort of uh, connect with you, maybe do some marketing, james at milhaven.com.au. Uh, but other than that, uh, I hope you have a great. What you got planned for the weekend, James? Anything good? Uh, I've got my son is swimming uh, comp on Saturday, so Homebush. It's, it's the most soulless place in the world if you've ever been to Homebush in Sydney. Uh, but I will be there for most of Saturday watching him swim. But that's that's good. Watching him swim is great. Uh, just the venue's not so great. So. Yeah, it's a cold pool, Homebush. Yeah, it's a fast pool, though. It is. I'm sorry, it's a fast pool. But it's Sheffield. I know all this. You can have slow pools and fast pools. It's Sheffield in the UK apparently is the fastest pool in, if not the world, then definitely Europe. So, there you, go. Mate, you really lucked out with that. One one daughter who's into horse riding and the other one's into swimming. Essentially, big no, pools no. early mornings. It's, it's, it's not, well, I dropped him off at 5 a.m. this morning for a squad training. So. Oh, I love it. Yeah, Rachel knows all about that, that's for sure. Man, yeah. thank you. This, we've taken up so much of your time, but it's been incredibly insightful. I know. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed Thanks, it. man. Have a great weekend. And to everybody else uh, who's still sticking around, have a great weekend and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, See ya. There. So there you have it, guys and girls. I hope you really enjoyed that episode. Uh, I had some really great outtakes and I hope you found that one thing that you can implement from it. Again, if you've enjoyed this, there's more to come. Please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we're going to be mixing it up. We're going to be doing a bit of this one-to-one stuff and we've got some cracking uh, interviews coming up as well as keep your eyes out for the cotton tactics stuff coming along where we uh, deliver small things that you can implement in your business week by week uh, that take you know 10 15 minutes to listen to and you know an hour to implement otherwise i hope you've enjoyed it and uh, i'll stay tuned and i'll see you at the next time take care